For this morning, we are in Psalm 99. This is God's Word. I'm going to read the entirety of the psalm, so let's give attention to it even now. Psalm 99, reading the entirety of the psalm. And there we read, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king and his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's pause and ask for his help, as we always do. As we consider this portion of his word together this morning, let's pray. Father, now as we humble ourselves before this, your word, a word that is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, a word that is able to to assess and ascertain the very motives and intentions of our own hearts, we pray, Father, that you would speak and that your people would listen. We pray that you'd help us now by your spirit as promised, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. In his book entitled Worship, Rediscovering the Missing Jewel, Ronald Allen writes the following. What then is the essence of worship? It is the celebration of God. When we worship God, we celebrate Him, we extol Him, we sound His praises, we boast in Him. Worship is not the casual chatter that occasionally drowns out the piano prelude. We celebrate God when we allow the prelude to attune our hearts to the glory of God by the means of the music. Worship is not the mumbling of prayers or the mouthing of hymns with little thoughts and less heart. We celebrate God when we join together earnestly in prayer and intensely in song. Worship is not grudging gifts or compulsory service. We celebrate God when we give to Him hilariously and serve Him with integrity. Worship is not haphazard music done poorly, not even great music done merely as a performance We celebrate God when we enjoy and participate in music to His glory. Worship is not a distracted endurance of the sermon. We celebrate God as we hear His Word gladly and seek to be conformed by it more and more to the image of our Savior. Worship is not the hurried motions of a tacked-on Lord's Supper. We celebrate God preeminently when we fellowship gratefully at the sacrament meal that speaks so centrally to our faith in Christ who died for us, who rose again on our behalf, and who is to return for us. In short, brothers and sisters, 
Worship is a celebration of the person and work of God rooted in the finished work of Christ to the glory of God because He alone is worthy of praise and adoration. In short, worship is a heartfelt response to all that God has done, though holy. Indeed, the thrice holy God of heaven, though holy is He, He has determined to save you. Though holy, He is pleased to call you to His holy mountain and worship He who is Holy, holy, holy. The problem for most people when it comes to worship is that they have little understanding as to what is happening and why. They have little understanding as to what is going on in the worship service and frankly, they don't even know why they are there. Perhaps for some, it is just mere ignorance. As an aside, by the way, and this is actually in my notes as I was thinking about you, parents. As an aside, parents, do you, do you teach your children why you bring them here? I know why they're here. Because you brought them here. I know because that's what happened to me as a boy. Mom and dad said, get in the car, you're going to church, and that's where I went. Whether I wanted to be there or not, or whether I even understand it, understood it or not. Do you tell them? That's your job, as it is my job, to tell them. For some, it is mere ignorance. They don't know why they're here. They have no idea. For others, it is mere duty and nothing more than that. They come, of course, because they say they're a Christian. They profess faith in Christ. Some of you are that way right now, sitting here right in this room. You're here because you have to be. Because that's what I do, after all, because I'm a Christian, and I guess Christians go to church on Sundays, so here I am. Or I've come because I don't want Pastor Bill sending me a text message later on in the day asking me where I was. Avoid all that. I'm just going to show up. For others, it is mere duty, nothing more. They are in worship because they say they know Christ, and Christians, after all, worship on Sunday. For others, and I hope this is for most of you, For others, the reasons are rooted in that which the psalmist teaches us in this psalm. The things that he says so so plainly and so clearly here in this 99th psalm, God is holy and he is majestic and he is so beautiful. He has forgiven my sin when he did not have to. He has condescended to my lowliest state. He has bid me come into his presence where there the angels of heaven are proclaiming the the holy nature of God. I come not merely because of duty, which is not a bad thing. I come also with joy and gladness because Christ alone has rescued me from my miserable estate. What else can I do but to sing praise to the God of heaven? That's why I'm here. I hope that is your reason for being here. I've come because not only has he forgiven me, he has promised to not leave me. And he's ordered the Lord's day that I might hear from the good shepherd of the sheep as the word of God is preached, as he speaks to me out of the cloud, as it were, as he might tend to my needs and instruct me through the preaching of the word, the primary ordinary means of grace. You betcha I'm coming here because I love the God of heaven because he is holy and because he is what he has done for me and I need to hear from him because if not, I'm ruined. 
That's why I'm here. And I hope that's the reason you are. Psalm 99 parallels, it does in many ways, Psalm 97. As in Psalm 97, Psalm 97, it gives the reasons for praise and worship and the imperative to praise and worship the God of heaven who alone is worthy. We don't even know the author. The Holy Spirit and His wisdom did not distract us from that issue. Apparently, He had no need to tell us. Some scholars, and they debate whether it's David, they, they, other debates center around various authorships. And frankly, who cares? Because I know the divine author, and He wrote it. He wrote it as one of the members of the Godhead who alone is to be worshipped, and he gives us reasons why he should be worshipped along with the Son and was along with the Father. What we know is that this psalm gives to us and highlights for us the holy nature of God and beckons all people, all people, not just redeemed people, all people everywhere to worship and adore him. Therefore, this morning, with God's help, I want to show you that your God has invited you to worship and hear from Him. And because because He alone is holy and worthy of praise from all people. I want to show you this morning, with the help of the Spirit of God, that your God has invited you. That's what the call to worship is, by the way. It's an invitation from the holy God of heaven to you, Creatures of dust to come in his presence and to adore him. And so I'm going to show you that he has beckoned you, he has called you, he's invited you to do this, to worship him and hear from him because he alone is holy and worthy of praise from all people. Two points as we consider uh, this psalm together. First, we will consider the very nature of God as cataloged for us in part in this psalm. And then we will consider the worship of God. The nature of God which leads then therefore necessarily to the worship of God for all theology, all study of God, all considerations of God must lead to doxology or frankly it's just an abortion. And so we will consider first the nature of God. The status of our God is given to us by the psalmist. He says this very plainly there. It doesn't take a whole lot of understanding to to even consider, even know what he means. When he says there in verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the people, the peoples, tremble. What we have here in very generic terms, uh, very broad stroke terms, is... uh, uh, description of the very divine sovereignty of God. People think, of course, they, they believe and they've convinced themselves to believe that they are singularly in charge of their lives. The captain of their own ship, as the, whoever it is that wrote that poem. They're the boss. They determine the affairs of our lives and their lives and Sometimes they try to control the affairs of everybody else's lives. But the Bible speaks very differently about the creatures he has made. The Lord reigns. Not the President of the United States. Not the Prime Minister of England or even the King of England. 
Not any earthly king, not any earthly leader. The Lord reigns over all the earth. It's to say that there's nothing that is outside of the control of our God. Kings and princes, presidents and congressmen, governors and mayors, all things fall under His reign always, and there's never a moment by which that, is tr- that isn't true. Always. The Lord reigns over all the earth. But then the psalmist gets a little more specific, and it's a very interesting way in which he weaves this in as he draws on the hearts of the redeemed of the Lord. As he makes this very generic statement, this very general application of the divine sovereignty of God over all the earth, over all the peoples, over every creature, he moves then to a little bit more of a specific statement. The Lord is great, he says, in Zion. But not only is God the ruler and reigner of all the earth, that therefore then requires that he is great and ruler and reigns over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, the people of God. Ordering and directing all of the affairs of this world, all of the things that are happening, all of the events, every circumstance, all of it being ordered and directed for the good of those that are of the house of Zion who dwell in the heavenly Jerusalem, who have been united by the blood of Jesus Christ. Referring here, then therefore, specifically to the people of God. And while it is true that God reigns over all, He does so, He does so, listen, He does so differently in the church. He does so differently when it comes to the redeemed. He rules and reigns over all of creatures and all of creation in such a way that he's bringing it all to a final cataclysmic end for all those outside of Christ. What is that end? It is but judgment. It is but ruin. Because they will not do what this psalm says. They will not worship the God of heaven. They will not bow the knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the rule that's going to bring them to that end. But for the church, this rule ushers us into Glory inexpressible. In a place in which no eye is seen, no ear is ever heard of that which God has for those who love Him. But He, because He is the alone sovereign of all things, only He then therefore can guarantee that He will bring that all to pass for the good of His people of which He's placed His eternal love. The reference to Zion is a reference then therefore to the place of worship to the holy city with the people of God that he enjoys the very bounties of God gather to worship. It is in the place of his earthly abode. It's his earthly throne. From there, he rules over his church, erecting his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of it. The status of our God is one of divine Omnipotent rule. Whenever you fret and worry about what is going on in the world, I challenge any of you to say that you watch more news than I do. I probably watch more news than everybody in this room. Fact remains, it can very much lead one to tremble. 
It can lead to fear, anxiety, worry. This is not to say you should never look at the news. This is to say that as you do, you remember what this psalm says. Joe Biden, Mr. President, is not in charge, ultimately. In the church, you don't need to worry or fret about what your elders do or do not do. They are not in charge, ultimately, either. It is the king ahead of the church who is. And it is there that we then trust and rest. But the psalmist doesn't only set that forth as our, one of our impetuses, one of our motivations to worship this God of heaven. He tells us something about his character. Now, you have to almost be blind not to see the main character that's being highlighted in the psalm. I mean, you'd have to be illiterate. And even then, you'd have to be deaf because I read it to you. What do you think, indeed, is the main characteristic, the main attribute, the central thing that the psalmist here is highlighting for us in this psalm as he encourages us to worship the God of heaven? Well, there it is. Verse 3, he is holy. Verse 5, he is holy. Verse 9, our God is holy. That is it. It is what everything then therefore springs from in which we are called to worship the God of heaven. No characteristic. Now, I know this is probably not going to make some of you very happy. I don't know. But no characteristic in the Bible is more pronounced than this one about the God of heaven. Not love, as important as that is, as central to the character of God as it is, not grace, not mercy, not judgment, holiness from which everything springs from his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his judgment, his kindness, his con- all of it comes from the holy nature, the thrice holy nature of the God of heaven. You remember what Isaiah witnessed in the temple? What did he see? He looked and beheld, uh, what? The cherubim there, the angels circling the throne and proclaiming day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the God we are being called to worship and adore and to live before. And frankly, when you live in sin, when you live in rebellion to God, you are blaspheming His holy nature. Holiness. No characteristic of God is more pronounced in the Bible than this one, not even His love. He is the thrice holy God of which there is no shadow or change in Him. No unrighteousness can be found in Him. He cannot and he will not tolerate sin. For if he were to tolerate it, he would no longer be God. And the Lord who reigns would not be reigning. In fact, the entire universe would collapse in on itself. This is the God we're called to worship. It is that which sets him apart from all of his creation. All of it. For while it is certainly true that you and I are called to live holy lives as redeemed people, we will never be as holy as God, for if we were, we would be God. The mind cannot comprehend the holiness of the God of heaven. We don't even come close to even trying to scratch the depth of it and of that which we ought to be thankful 
that he is this. Imagine a God who wants to be worshipped and adored and served who is not holy. Imagine what that might be like. The tyranny that would fall out from a God such as that who has no restraints and nothing governing. That's the God of Islam, by the way. In case you're wondering. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy. It sets him apart from everything. But what does it mean? And here, woven into this psalm, we have some aspects by which we can tell and see how this works itself out throughout this psalm. First, that he is the majestic God, beautiful and glorious. The psalmist used the word reign. And when we think of the reigning of some monarch, we think, don't we, of a throne? We think of the majesty that comes with the pomp and circumstance of the king of England as he moves through the town or as he walks from place to place and the entourage that surrounds him. We think of this just for an earthly monarch. Imagine the majesty deserved to this, the true monarch, the thrice holy monarch of heaven and earth. His majesty, which highlights for us his dignity and his sovereign power. It's a link, really, to his kingship as ruler over all things. It highlights his will. His will is such that it is other than yours. It's other than mine. His ways, you've heard this before, sometimes badly used, but be that as it may, his ways are not your ways. They're not even mine. Who can understand and plumb the the depth of his wisdom and his will and his mind. The Apostle Paul, at the end of Romans 11, after going through what is arguably the greatest treatise of theology ever penned by man, gets to the end of it all, and all he can do is say, Wow. Bill paraphrase. The depth of the wisdom... How unsearchable are your ways. Why? Because he's holy. He's not like you. He's not like me. His wrath, verse 4, highlighted there, clearly the king, his majesty the king, loves justice and establishes equity and executes it in his world. Naturally, as a holy God, he cannot and he will not tolerate sin. Don't don't be deceived. Friends, don't. It's not about your intentions. It's not about the best of efforts that you have made. It's not about any of these things. You cannot sweep it under the rug. It will be exposed for all to see. And God willing, you'll do it in this world, in this life, with Christ as your hope. Because if not, you will be lost. Because He's holy. Because he executes judgment in the world. But it also brings to the people of God comfort as they come to worship this holy God. Why? Because we see a world gone completely insane. There are no morals anymore. People do what they want to do in rebellion against the God of heaven. And we come to worship in this thing that the world thinks is stupid and silly. And we do so with the confidence knowing that this just holy God will never, ever 
ever allow these people to get away with a thing. He will vindicate His people and acquit them on the day of judgment. His holiness is one of great wrath. For the Christian, it is addressed, isn't it? In His Son. That alone should get you here every Lord's Day. Both services. I mean, really, I'm, I'm sorry, but do you only need a little bit of God in your life? His Son has accomplished that wrath for you. But for the unbeliever, I warn you, as a minister of the gospel, you will not escape. You can say what you like. I have the authority of the Bible in God's mind to differ. Please, don't trifle with the holy God of heaven. Too much is at risk. And, you don't, and you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So he's holy in his judgment. He is holy in his righteousness. A righteousness that really differs from holiness is that this is the exercise of it. Everything he does is bathed in this righteousness. It is what he wills and moral issues, as we read of His moral law as contained for us in His Word. It's a mirror, a reflection of the holy nature of God. Every time you read the Ten Commandments, I shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship me only and me only. You shall reverence my name. You shall keep the Sabbath day. You shall honor your mother and your father. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You're reading something of the righteousness of God, his moral nature. You're reading something of his holiness. And as you come to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, you hear from him in those ways to encourage you to be as he is. As Peter said, Be holy as I am holy. That's not a New Testament exhortation either, by the way. It's all over Leviticus. You know, the book where Bible reading plans go to die. Okay. Something of the character of God. A people, however. The problem, of course, is we reflect upon this God. We stand in awe of Him. But then we recognize, guess what? We're we're not Him. We're, We're not holy. Uh, indeed, we're, we're sinners, justly deserving God's displeasure, His judgment. This is the problem, isn't it? It's the problem for all mankind, regardless of the hubris offered by sinners. I heard, listening to the news, from the words of our own president, the arrogance and boastfulness, Of how the American people can do anything if they just work together. It's like we have no limits. We don't ever acknowledge the God of heaven. That we're able in our own abilities to accomplish everything. Move mountains. and Really, the Lord reigns. If He wants you to move mountains, He'll let you. If He doesn't, you're not going to move it no matter how hard you try. And no matter how much you work together. We're sinners. The Christian, for the Christian, there will always be a degree of indwelling sin that we must fight in battle. We wrestle with these things all of our days. And frankly, if you're a Christian and you don't sense that wrestling and that 
pulling at your heart and the struggles of your own mind at times, I wonder if you're a Christian. It's a battle, it's a siege to live a holy life in an unholy world. But with that said, there's Christ. Because of that, when God, this majestic God who looks down from His throne where He rules and reigns, when He sees you and me, what does He see? A mess. Disaster. Blob of ugly. No! If I I can get one thing through your heads as a minister to your pastor, if I can get this through your head, somehow I'm going to get it through there. When God sees you, He sees you in Christ. And when He sees you in Christ, He sees you as as holy as you'll ever be. That's it. He's accepted you. He's adopted you because of Christ. You live in His family. You're His. You belong to Him. I mean, there cannot be more encouragement than that right there. I need not fear, then therefore, the judgment of God as I stand before him on that great day. Why? Because somebody else took it for me. When God looks at me, he says, hey, you're my son. All's good. Because you know the elder brother. Welcome. Too many Christians run around acting like they've never been forgiven. With that said, of course, there's the other side of it. For God is not stupid either. He knows that we need to be sanctified. And so he conforms us, doesn't he? Day after day, week after week, conforms us to the image of God. And friends, one of the ways in which he is conforming you is right now, here, this day, in this room. As I was saying to the new members class this morning, this is an act of discipline. I know you don't like that word. Well, that's okay. It's not a bad word. You're being disciplined right now, positively by the expression and the preaching of the Word of God. If you heed these things, you will grow in holiness. If you don't, you won't. It's really that simple. And so you, who have repented of your sin and of looking to Christ and you're saying there's nothing more than Christ, I I got nothing to offer anyway, it's all Jesus, that's the end of it, you persevere. You keep showing up on the Lord's day. You keep doing what the Lord has asked you to do. You keep walking humbly with Him in meekness and holiness and reverence and awe of this majestic King. But there's another group of people. There's the unbeliever. And the holiness of God should make you tremble even as it says in this psalm. Tremble. I saw a man tremble yesterday. Because he was nervous. I watched his handshake and tried to help him by telling him, we'll get you through this as fast as we can. That's nothing. Nothing. Of what it will be like for the unbeliever to stand before the, the holiness of God. You should tremble. It should scare you. Why? Why? Because God is holy, and you will be judged by that standard. You will stand naked and exposed to Him. You can't con Him. You can't fool Him. You can't trick Him. You can't deceive Him. You can't make up stories and excuses to Him. You will stand naked and exposed to Him to whom you must give an account. 
Can you really sit there today and say, I have, I have never sinned? Can you, can you really say, I've never done wrong? I've never violated God's moral laws. I've never stolen. I've never committed adultery. I've never coveted. Can you really sit there and say, I've never spoken ill of another. I've never slandered anybody with my lips. I've never gossiped, which is a Sixth Commandment violation, by the way, a murderous violation. Can you really sit there and say, I've always done what is right in every circumstance, in thought, word, and deed? Friends, the answer is no. Don't lie to yourself. No. The only response to this is, in wake of God's holiness and His right to rule and reign over all things, and one who will execute justice is to repent, is to look to Christ, cry out like the tax collector. It's really not complicated. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. Be merciful merciful to the one who is not holy and in which dwells no good thing. The response of the people, all people, then therefore, should be to worship him. The unbeliever will do so anyway. I know you might think that as you sit there and you're arguing with me in your mind right now. But you will. You will bow the knee before the king. You will do it one way or the other. You will either do it as an act of the will on that great day or the angels in heaven will put you on your knees. One way or the other, you are going to bow before the king of kings. Why don't you do it now? Right now. Here in this place. First, humble your heart and realize of your ways and turn to this holy God. He won't mistreat you. He'll be nothing but kind to you. He'll give you all that you need. He gives you all the blessings of Christ. He gives you the hope of eternity. He gives you everything possible, things you can't possibly imagine. Look to Him. The other response, of course, is for those who know Christ. You acknowledge the right of your of a holy God to demand of His creatures worship that is agreeable to His will. You love the Lord's Day. You you come hungry to be in His presence and adore the majestic King. You long to hear from Him as as He speaks from heaven. You prepare. You take seriously the truth that you were made to worship, and indeed, that's why you were made. Be encouraged. Why, Why should you be encouraged by that? That's the Spirit of God working in your life bringing you more and more into conformity with Him, causing you to grow and become more and more like Christ, which is the most important thing anyway. There's some, of course, as they respond to these things, they say they name the name of Christ, they say they love Christ, but you're here because you have to be. You fight and resist all the means by which things are done. You think you know better of how it should be done. Instead of focusing on the holiness of God. Here. In a room with stains in the ceilings. And who cares about that stuff? 
We're here to worship the holiness and the majesty and beauty of the God of heaven. And so we turn to that, don't we? That's what the psalm is driving us to. It's setting it all before us that we might be encouraged and excited and we might have enthusiasm to worship the God of heaven. And he highlights it for us really with structure. Worship is not haphazard, random, whatever, show up, do whatever we want as long as it makes me feel better. He mentions these three guys here in the psalm. You might wonder, why why are these names there? Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. What we have here is an ordained worship. What unites all three of these men is that they were all ordained of the Lord. Called by him for a specific purpose. And two of them is easy. It's easy to figure out Moses and Aaron and their purpose as it relates to worship. Samuel, might, you might have to work at it a little bit, but you won't have to work too long because I'm going to tell you in a minute. Moses and Aaron in their service, they served as mediators for God's people. It was Aaron that was really the mouthpiece of Moses. Doubt that? Go back and start reading in Exodus. He, the first high priest who ministered in the Holy of Holies for the people, It's not difficult to see how these men represent the aspect of worship. Moses, of course, was a mediator, a type of Christ. He spoke uh, face-to-face with the God of heaven uh, on behalf of the people. It's not difficult for us to see how they're used here. Their calling, of course, was not by human hands, but by the hands of God. And we worship in the same way today. Frankly, worship is cheapened when it is not done according to the design of God. God is lost in all of the sauce of the silliness of man's inventions. Puppet shows and the liturgical dance. I've seen just about everything. It's all lost. God in his holiness, his majesty, his beauty. It's all lost. But I worship today. Well, if that's what you want to call it. Worship is cheapened when it is not done according to the design of God. God did not leave it up to men in the Old Testament to figure it out. He ordained Moses and he ordained Aaron to lead the people of God in his worship. But then there's this other guy, Samuel. How does that factor in? Does it line up with this idea of worship? Well, what was Samuel? He was a prophet. Moses was a prophet, but Samuel was a prophet. He was a man who spoke the very word of God. He spoke that which God would give him to speak to the people of God. Some of them liked it. Some of them didn't. You can think of one guy who didn't like it very much. His service was to speak and to preach and to proclaim. Is that not what we do in this room? What is my task? My task is not to highlight this desk, this wooden box, My task is to highlight the holiness of God. My task is to highlight Christ and exalt Him in the sermons. That's what the prophets were to do. They were to speak the Word of God into the people to highlight His glory, His majesty. And when any man stands in a pulpit in any church anywhere in the world and doesn't do that, he hasn't done what he's supposed to do. Frankly, he should be stricken dead. Samuel does this. He was a prophet. He spoke. His calling was to speak these things. 
It happens every Lord's Day. Friends, it happens every Lord's Day when an ordained minister preaches the gospel, preaches the word of God to you. And insofar as it's faithful to the scriptures, you are not hearing me. Yes, it's my voice. But you're hearing the living voice of Christ. You're hearing him to you. To help you, to guide you, to direct you, to point him to the glory of his Father, to do all of the things that he said he would do to guide you. It's an ordained worship. It's a revealing worship. God is present. Verse 7. He's present. He's in this room right now. And I can tell you, and here's what I guess concerns me somewhat. That if the pillar was sitting here, the pillar of cloud in which God spoke, according to verse 7, and the psalmist left out the fire, but if that was over here on this side of the room, some of you would behaving, be, be behaving much differently right now. Friends, that's backwards. That's backwards. We have the substance of what those things said. I don't want a pillar. I want the Word of God. I don't want a fire. I I want the Word of God. I want what He's given. I want it the inscripturated Word. I want His mind, His will. I want it read. I want it proclaimed. I want to hear from Him. I don't want to see a... I want to... This is what I want. This is what I need. That was a type. It was a picture. It was a shadow of God being present with the people. He is present now, here, today. You might think, well, you know, he's always present with me. That's true. But he's present with us here today in a unique way, for he's meeting not with just one of his people. He's meeting with all of his people represented in this church. He's in this room in a unique way, like he was with them in a unique way in the pillar of fire and the cloud. Numerous references in the Old Testament to this very thing of hearing the voice of God speaking from this pillar. But in the New Testament, the same is true of our worship, but greater. It may be less dramatic. I know some of you would say, well, if he would just do that, I'd I'd worship better. No, No, you wouldn't. Because they didn't in the Old Testament. They rebelled and they rejected him. You would not. You would do worse. If you will not listen to the voice of the prophets, if you will not listen to Moses, if you will not... Why would you listen to me? We have better in the New Testament. A greater weight of glory than even Moses experienced, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. We have the very presence of God here, as they did. His holiness, His majesty, His beauty, it's all here, and He speaks then, therefore, as He spoke to them, He speaks to us through the reading of His word, And that is why worship in this place, as long as I'm standing in this pulpit, will always be full of the Word of God. What else do we need? Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of God. Have you ever taken the time to review how much of the Word of God you are receiving each Lord's Day in this worship service? 
Well, if you haven't, I'm going to help you. From the call to worship, it's Scripture, by the way. The psalms and the hymns sung, which are rooted in Scripture. The Scripture lesson, of course, is uh, duh, is obviously Scripture. Uh, the pastoral prayer, which is full of quotes from Scripture, and the reason you don't recognize it is because you're not well attuned with the Scriptures. But I'm quoting the Bible in many places throughout the prayer. Of course, the sermon is the Scriptures. Even the benediction. There is so much Bible in your worship service, but it's a means to what? That you might see the holiness of God, that you might hear the voice of God speaking from the, as it were, pillar in the cloud. All of it he gives, not for his sake, but he might avenge the wrongdoings of our own lives, that he might forgive us for our own sins. We come here to be reminded of our need for redemption. Even in the sins that Moses committed, and some scholars, they, they, they don't, they're not exactly sure the reference to this as an avenger of their wrongdoings. The antecedent might be very different, but the question is, and the obvious fact is, is that Moses sinned. He was a sinner. He hit the rock, and I have a biblical theological reason for why he was judged so severely for that, but be that as it may, he disobeyed, and he was punished Aaron, one only has to think about the time he and his sister came waltzing down there and said, you know, Moses, here's the deal. Uh, You know, we know better than you. And God said, look, you all come to the principal's office. And Aaron and Miriam, uh, well, they were judged. God avenged their wrongdoing because he's holy, but he did it and covered it under the blood of the Lamb. God doesn't call us to worship and behold His holiness because when you come in here and see us and, and, and acknowledge His holiness, He suddenly becomes more holy. God is as holy as He was before you got here today and He'll be as holy as He is after you leave. In fact, He was as holy as He'll ever be before He ever created anything. And so we're not increasing that holiness. He doesn't give us this worship for Him. He gives it for us. Tells us why. He gives us all the reasons. He gives you all the blessings, all the privileges, all the benefits, all of it. If we would just believe it, if we would just take hold of it. If we would only listen, we would be blessed and benefits as we sit and worship at His holy mountain because He alone is holy. You know, really, when you think about it, our only duty when it comes to worship is to simply obey what we hear from the Word of God with glad hearts. Not a very long list. Just come with joy and listen with gladness and go forth with God's blessing. Because we have this need for worship because God is holy. There is no God like our God. None. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be exalted. He will be with or without you. The rocks would cry out His glory if you don't. The means is the gathering on the Lord's day to worship Him. The reference to Zion, the reference to His holy mountain, all points to that 
that place, that location in the Old Testament economy in which the people gathered. Now, thankfully, we don't have that problem. We don't have to travel to the Middle East to do it. We can do it anywhere. But it's done on the Lord's Day. A day of worship. To worship according to the ways in which God has instructed us. We don't do things in this room just because it's my idea. I could fill this room. You've heard me say this before. I'm telling you, I could fill this room. We'd be building in a week. I just got to order pizza uh, during the service. And, you know, you get some people walk up and down the aisles and give you popcorn. And and all kinds of crazy things could be going on. I could fill this place with people. God is interested in true worshipers. I'd rather have 20 people who love God and worship him in spirit and in truth than 2,000 who don't. And so the means by which we do it is on the Lord's day, the way he has said. And the response is, of course, is the rebellious to the rebellious, to those who heard this sermon, to those who read this psalm. The the response, of course, is simple. It really is. It's simple. Just humble yourself. I'm a sinner. I need your help. Humble yourself before the holy God of heaven and earth. Submit to his will in this area. Don't resist. From the words of Okay, you guessed it. The words of Calvin. There is no one so great or so mighty that he can avoid the misery that will rise up against him when he resists and strives against God. No one. For the submissive, for those who love to be here, behold and see that a forgiving God Kind and gracious, beyond imagination, you have no idea. A God who witnessed you execute his son. I wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, you were. A God who is so gracious to sinners calls us, you, into his presence. Why? That he might strengthen you. That he might help you. Thus you stand in awe of the majesty of your God and you praise Him as you are now as you are now doing. Remaining dependent upon the Spirit's help as you enter to worship at His holy mountain. As you do and as this church does, we will shock this county with the glory of the God of heaven. But that should be our only delight. He gives us to us, church, that we might prosper and be eternally blessed. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all that it teaches us. Forgive us for the ways in which we fall short of the things that we have just heard indeed. Grant to us a renewed zeal for your worship and all that you have done, all that you have given us What more can you do than that which you have said and told us? May we then humbly listen as your creatures to that which you have told us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.